Hello, welcome to the episode in the Let People Prosper series. My name is Dr. Vance Ginn. Hope you're having a prosperous day. Well, today we're having episode 24. We're recording on December 15th, 2022. And I'm glad to have on the program someone who's been fighting for poverty relief, someone who's really been looking at a lot of the programs that have been going in there, but also has edited a great new book, um, The American Renewal, through the American Enterprise Institute. And it's none other than Angela Rashidi. Angela, welcome to the Let People Prosper show. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, I'm really glad that you're on the program today, and I'm looking forward to our discussion going through a lot. I know the the book itself, which is available on American Enterprise Institute's website, AEI, you can find it there. Um, It's also AmericanRenewalBook.com. You can find some information there for the audience as well. Uh, But I really recommend going out and and, and getting a copy of this because there's so much good information going from fiscal policy to poverty relief, just a lot of good things. And I want to talk about that today. But first, for the audience, let me go ahead and give them your bio so they'll know who we're, we're talking to today. Angela is a senior fellow and the Rose Scholar in Poverty Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI, where she studies poverty and the effects of federal safety net programs on low-income people in America. She is an expert in support programs for low-income Americans, including the Temporary Assistance for Needy family, Families, TANF, the Child Care and Development Block Grant, and the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as SNAP. She also studies the effects of earned income tax credit and the child tax credit on low-income American families, particularly on their work and income. Her research focuses on the relationship between employment and poverty, specifically the effectiveness of government programs and policies on increasing employment and family well-being. Before joining AEI, Dr. Rashidi spent almost a decade researching benefit programs for low-income populations in New York City. From 2007 to 2015, she served as a deputy commissioner in New York City's Department of Social Services, where she oversaw the agency's policy research and program evaluation efforts. She also evaluated the effectiveness of government programs as a senior researcher for Mathematica before returning to AEI. She is affiliated with the Institute for Research on Poverty, ERP, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the Economic Self-Sufficiency Policy Research Institute at the University of California, Irvine. She's also a member of the Poverty Tax and Transfer Policies Research Network work sponsored by ERP and a board member for the National Association for Welfare Research and Statistics. She previously served in the AI Brookings Paid Family Leave Working Group. She's been published in many academic journals, publications there, and popular press. She has a PhD in public policy from the New Schools Milano's, um, New Schools Milano School of International Affairs, uh, Management, and Urban Policy. She also has a Master of Public Administration from Northern Illinois University and a BS in Public Administration from the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. Great background, a lot of good information going on there. And so I, I'm really excited about talking to you today. To you today. And I, I think the first thing that I'd like to discuss is what motivates you, Angela? What really gets you going each and every day to do what you do? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, um, you know, just you can tell I'm the one thing from my bio, right, is just I've been around for kind of a long time. <laughs> um, and so been doing this work for a while. And I would say, I mean, what motivates me is, I mean, I grew up in a traditional Midwestern family from a small town in Wisconsin and very much uh, centered on service. Uh, So when I looked to what was, how was I going to pursue my education, um, it really was around government and how can government better serve uh, people. 
And so it wasn't until though I moved to New York City that I got involved in uh, programs for low-income Americans. And what really, I think, uh, kind of introduced me to the issues facing low-income Americans was really my experience in New York City and kind of um, experiencing on the front line families that were, were really struggling from an economic perspective. And it very much opened my eyes to what were kind of the underlying causes of some of those challenges. Um, and it became very clear early on uh, in my career that employment was a, ma a major component of that. Fam Low-income families that I interacted with very much wanted to work, wanted to provide for their families. And there were just so many kind of barriers or roadblocks in their way, um, some certainly of their own making, some community level, but it increasingly became clear that government was actually uh, creating some of those roadblocks and was not working in an effective way. And so that I think is what really does motivate me in terms of with all the challenges families are facing, government should not be one more challenge. That If we're going to have government programs for low-income families, they should really work and they should be effective. Um, and I think that's what motivates me every day. Well said. And I'm so glad that you're working on that because we need people like you to be working on this um, because many families are struggling for a number of reasons. With your experience, what are some of the lessons that you've taken away? We've shared some of that here, but what maybe what are some of the stories that you've seen where people feel oftentimes what I've heard from others is that they feel like they're trapped sometimes in these poverty programs. Um, but I wonder what some of your experiences have been. Yeah, and that's actually a great way to put it because based on my experience, and again, this is like kind of frontline. So I worked for a city that was providing these services directly to people. Um, my work was um, kind of on the evaluation and policy research side. But that allowed me to go out in the field, survey people, observe them interacting with program staff, things like that. And so when you say that they feel trapped, that that is much of my research found that that was the perception they had. And part of the reason they feel trapped is because even, even if they had the motivation to try to do the things that they knew would help their families, meaning employment, getting an education, you know, finding a child care provider so that they could go out and either look for a job or find a job, when they did those things, the government agencies or the programs would often say, well, well, don't do too much of that mm. because your income might be too high and then you won't be eligible for these programs anymore. Or you can do, you know, do this one thing, but oh, don't do don't do that other thing because then you might be ineligible. So it was all these kind of strange, um, perverse incentives in my mind, where people were trying to get ahead, but they kept having these doors kind of slammed in their uh, in their face, really. And and that's I think that sense of being trapped and not being able to get ahead is true. And then I think over time that creates this culture of just why even try. And so it kind of feeds into this culture of poverty of, well, why should I try if, if I'm never going to get ahead? Um, and I think that's a lot of um, a lot of what happens in some of these uh, low income, low income communities and why we see this problem of poverty uh, so difficult to address. You just saying that is kind of giving me tingles because I, you're, you're so right. I think that there are so many issues that go into that same space. Um, you know, growing up, I grew up in a pretty low income area of Houston, um, kind of the South Houston area. And I, and I saw that happen with a lot of, you know, family and friends and others where if you get married, you lose some of these programs. And so maybe you don't get married 
And that can create some other issues within the family structure and everything else. And I, and I know with the book that we want to discuss today, um, that was recently published by AEI, American Enterprise Institute, American Renewal, a conservative plan to strengthen the social contract and save the country's finances. I, I really like that title um, because they're, they're all interconnected, right? And a lot of times, whenever I think about civil society, how can we have civil society flourish to where people, families, churches, synagogues, they're able to help each other in the process. And too often, maybe government gets in the way or they're taking our finances to where we can't provide the resources that, that we want um, each day. And, and ultimately, what we need is more people to have, you know, a job. A job is the best path to, out of prosperity or out of, out of poverty and to prosperity. And kind of that's where this whole podcast came from, the Let People Prosper show is where I kind of feel like my calling is to help define ways to get people to prosper. <laughs> Coming from my humble background and everything, else how do we do that and i i guess what is your next step and when you're thinking about the book what were some of the key highlights from the book that we can build on you know throughout the rest of our discussion the motivation behind the book and, and this was a book that was co-edited by myself and former speaker of the house paul ryan but it's a compilation um, so we invited 19 total scholars um, most of them are from the american enterprise institute or aei but we did pull in a couple of additional scholars um, but the main motivation was the impending fiscal crisis the country is facing in terms of rising debt, um, you know, and, and, and it's especially concerning now with interest rates rising, um, you know, money is not free. Um, and this it's going to uh, it's going to come to a head soon. Uh, and the country is facing uh, really some, you know, dire circumstances in terms of just being able uh, to pay down the debt and continue uh, some of these programs. So that was the kind of main motivation. Um, but then we looked at it as an opportunity, given that there are these extreme fiscal challenges. Is there a way, and, and I should add too, these fiscal challenges are largely driven by entitlement program problems. So Social Security and Medicare are the two biggest ones. Right. Um, is, it kind of presents an opportunity that lets, we obviously need to reform not only those problem, those programs, but those are the major ones, but it provides an opportunity to reform a number of programs to try to strengthen <clears throat> that social contract, given that we have to reform these programs anyway, just to make them fiscally solvent. And so that was really the motivation behind the book. Um, and the other thing was the, the, that we wanted to sort of present is that there are a lot of serious Serious people, scholars like myself, like my colleagues at AEI, who have been studying these issues and trying to come up with um, solid policy solutions for a number of years. Um, some of my colleagues for decades have been working on like the issues around Medicare and issues around Social Security. So we wanted to bring all of that together um, and focus on how do we strengthen the social contract in terms of poverty reduction, education, civil society, as you mentioned, but also address this, um, you know, real fiscal crisis that the country is facing. And so that was our goal. Um, and we pulled it all together. And, and that is the American Renewal book. 
Awesome. Well, it's, it's so needed right now, too. Uh, the national debt over $31 trillion here in, in late 2022 and continues to ratchet up. And as you said, interest rates continue to go up. <laughs> and so the cost, just the net interest on the debt is going up quite substantially. And I don't, I don't care if somebody's a progressive, a libertarian or conservative. I think we can all think about better ways to spend those dollars or keeping money in people's pockets than putting it net, net interest on the debt. So it's really something that we've got to get control over. And I consider myself to be more of a classical liberal in the sense that in my vision, long term, I would love to see the day where there's no need for government welfare programs. We don't need these safety nets that the civil society is flourishing. So we have job creation and well-paid jobs and people don't need it. And if they do, are in need, because I still think that there will be some people in need, that that comes from the family, that comes from the churches and synagogues and those the community itself of that nature. Um, but unfortunately, I don't see that happening anytime soon. So that means that we are going to have these safety net programs. And I think that's why it's so important for the type of work that you're doing of trying to make those key reforms for TANF or SNAP or something else. You know, just a quick story here in Texas is that um, in, in Texas, we they spend about a billion dollars a year on TANF, temporary assistance for needy families. About half of it is from the state funding. Half of it is from the federal funding. Um, but from what I've done some research on is only about 4% of that actually goes to basic public assistance. Some of it goes to Head Start, like a pre-K type program. Some of it goes to this program and that other program. But but I wonder kind of on your research on a program like TANF, um, which is a block grant from the federal government that comes into the state and they kind of spend it somewhat what they want, but there are goals that they try to meet. What have you seen in other, other states and maybe what are some of your recommendations on how to improve it? So it actually goes to the people that they're trying to help. Yeah, no, it's a I mean, TANF is an interesting kind of example because prior to the welfare reforms in, in the 1990s, TANF, which previously was AFDC, an acronym that we don't even need to get into, but it was kind right. of a no strings attached cash welfare program where it would primarily was providing income assistance, cash to low-income families. At that time, it was mostly single mother families. And the intention behind it was very good. It was you know single mothers who were, who were very poor um, and providing them assistance. Well, the welfare reform in 96 completely transformed that. It created the block grant TANF, as you mentioned, um, but it also gave states a lot of flexibility in how to provide um, or how to spend that money. And so over time, I mean, that now has been 25 years, over time, um, the need for cash assistance, that AFDC program that I mentioned through TANF, has become um, really increasingly rare. The need for it is rare because we have other programs. We have the Earned Income Tax Credit, which also provides cash assistance, but only to working families. So TANF was really the shift of providing, again, no strings attached cash assistance to focus assistance on working families because we we knew from research at the time that employment really was the kind of stepping stone uh, to, to getting families out of poverty. So you're exactly right. Texas is one example. Other states also spend a small amount of, of that money on uh, actual cash assistance. But in my view, in my research over the years, I actually like the way TANF is set up. And I believe that that does sort of reflect this view that cash assistance through a 
program like TANF is not needed as much as it was before because now the focus is on work and we have the earned income tax credit and we have food assistance and we have child care assistance and all these other programs that exist and it makes um, the, the cash assistance through TANF uh, less, less relevant. And I like giving states the flexibility to use that money in the way that they best see fit. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think that the states would have a better idea maybe of what their constituents of what the citizens want need within that state compared to what the federal government wants <laughs> or needs. They do. Uh, and I will say, though, that requires those states to be held accountable um, right. because we've seen over the last year some really egregious examples of fraud within TANF. Um, Mississippi for, is one example. Brett Favre got involved. <laughs> there was a lot of fraud in that. Pro so, I mean, there I'm not you know naive to say, oh, you know, things don't happen. And so there does need to be accountability. But I very much agree that I think states are in a better position to know how um, know what their constituents need, what their residents need, uh, and are in a better position to, to spend that money. Yeah, certainly. One of the things that I've been looking at in, in Texas and some other states, been working with what's called the Alliance for Opportunity, which is with the Texas uh, Texas Public Policy Foundation, Pelican Institute in Louisiana, and Georgia Center for Opportunity in Georgia. And one of the things that we've been working on some research on is efficiency audits, uh, like independent efficiency audits, even uh, maybe it's from the state audit office, but even an external, maybe private entity that goes in and, and checks out TANF and others. And there was a, a bill, House Bill 1516 in Texas passed last year uh, to do an efficiency audit, independent one, of TANF. And they took a deep dive and they found some important things that some of those agencies are already starting to make some reforms, um, hopefully in a good direction to improving that. And I, I wonder what are some of the other key insights that you would have for these types of programs um, that would help to, what I think consider to be more dollars to the people we're trying to help compared to bureaucracy, administration, and other types of things. Some of that's going to happen. It's inevitable. Some of that has to go there. But how much can we get more to the people we need, along with the best path to self-sufficiency? I think that's ultimately what we want. We don't want people in these cyclical um, or generational poverty where they just keep going back on the programs time and again. What do you think would help to provide more self-sufficiency over time? Sure. Well, I'll just I'll describe for you what... So in our American Renewal book, um, I wrote a chapter on the safety net with my colleagues, Matt Whitinger and Scott Winship. Um, and I'll just describe uh, what we propose because it, it directly addresses your question. Based on the, our collective work, um, we kind of identify really three pillars of what kind of underlines poverty, but also then the issues that need to be addressed to help families escape poverty in the long run. And those are education, employment, and family structure. Um, so kids, it's you're much like, less likely to be in poverty if there's two parents in the household. And so our argument for kind of this overhaul of the safety net is let's build on welfare reform, where we did give states some flexibility to design programs that actually address those problems. Because to your point, we have this system set up now, and we point this out in the book, there's 80 plus programs that the Congressional Budget Office has identified that are federally funded and target uh, low-income Americans, 80 plus programs. <laughs> and that means that there's bureaucracies around all of these programs. Uh, and, there's, and, and it ends up inevitably being people, you know, workers, figuring out how to function within this system instead of 
how do we address those root causes that, of poverty that I mentioned? So what we propose in, in our chapter in the book is to let the federal government kind of do what the federal government is good at, which is transferring money to low-income families. We know the federal government can do that through the earned income tax credit, through the child tax credit. Um, it can transfer a lot of money to, to needy families. So we say, let's do that, but let's reform that system by combining the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit, simplify it, reduce the bureaucracy, create one tax credit that goes to work working households, and then we also propose uh, a partially addressing the marriage penalty that's currently uh, in that program. But then what we do, and this kind of directly addresses your question, is that the balance of the safety net, the rest of the safety net, the food assistance, job training, childcare, it, the whole package of system, disability assistance for low-income Americans, Americans, all of that, which is currently mostly federally funded, which gives states no incentive to try to actually help people and reduce poverty because that reduces the amount of federal dollars coming into their states. Yeah. We say, let's let's give states flexibility to kind of tear down that system and build something up that they can then truly address those underlying causes. They can design a program that actually helps people find employment. They can design a program that tries to keep parents together so that they can have the resources that they need to, to escape poverty. And in our view, again, holding states accountable through outcome measures, through audits, like you mentioned. So that piece is there, but let's allow states to design programs in a way that they think is going to uh, uh, most bene benefit uh, low-income families. And so that's kind of the package. There is a role for the federal government, certainly, um, but let's give states more of a role and more of an incentive to actually help families. Yep. Yep. Uh, I like it. The, um, and that's the chapter, A Safety Net for the Future, Overcoming the Root Causes of Poverty uh, for the audience. Great chapter. Highly recommend it. And the, the latest numbers that I've seen is that since the war on poverty by uh, President Johnson in the 1960s, there's been over $20 trillion, maybe close to $25 trillion in uh, net present value, today's dollars, right, uh, over that period of time. We spend about, like you said, 80 plus programs at the federal level, uh, more than a trillion dollars a year on these types of programs. Um, it's a massive amount of money. Um, you would think that with us spending that kind of money, everyone would already be out of poverty, that this would solve the, this would solve the poverty. We would, we would have won the war on poverty, yet it, yet it keeps going. And, and so I'm hopeful that we can get these sort of reforms moving in this direction. And I like the way you put that too with kind of the streamlining of some of these programs. You know, um, I think that'll be important. I think by having maybe something like the Utah model where the, the Workforce Commission, Health and Human Services are together. So there's a one-door policy of getting people through the program. Something else that I've also been thinking about is not necessarily a UBI. I'd love to get maybe your thoughts on this. Um, universal basic income, where you get a check that's sent out. And some of the, some people want to do that for everyone across the United States. And I'm kind of like, well, why? I, I don't need uh, an extra check. I, I like it, but I know that there's there's a cost. Like you said earlier, there's there's no free money, there's no free lunch here, so it has to come out of my other pocket. But but what about you know streamlining some of these programs like maybe TANF, Women and Infant and Children um, program, uh, SNAP, 
housing vouchers to onto something that I've kind of called an empowerment account, like a card that connects them and streamlines them and gets the money to the people we're trying to help um, versus all this other bureaucracy that's going on. And that way, you know, it's it's a it's more of a cash based, although you would have certain approved items just like you do with food stamps now, what you can purchase. Um, but I think it would help to reduce the cost and also connect it more with the community that there's a community navigator that's going to help you out versus just a, a government bureaucrat, right? Just saying this way and that way. But I wonder, what do you think about those types of, of ideas? Yeah, that's actually uh, exactly what we envisioned in writing our chapter. Uh, and we even provided an example of, we propose it as a demonstration project, which means a state would get kind of permission from the federal government to design like a Like, like a pilot program, like pilot a program, pilot. right? Yep, exactly. And so the example we provide in the book is, you know, very similar to what you just described in that a state could actually pool funding streams. So they could pool SSI, which is for low income disabled individuals. They could pool SSI, housing assistance, SNAP, WIC. Um, you know, and in um, uh, TANF, for example, like those five, because those are kind of the five big programs, they could pool that money and they could actually, instead of providing assistance, you know, kind of in this siloed approach, they could sit with a family, you develop an assistance budget, you say, you know, if you work, here's what your assistance will be, we can phase it out slowly to try to address benefit cliffs or high effective marginal tax rates. You know, it's just a much much more kind of case by case, uh, uh, family centered approach um, that gets rid of all the bureaucracy and gets rid of the, um, you know, rules are important. But when you have rules for five different programs that all compete against each other, that's just not serving uh, the real intention behind those rules and regulations. So we envision, yeah, much more kind of holistic approach um, that still, again, has controls over it, but sort of just breaks down these silos and, uh, and allows local communities communities with oversight, but local communities to develop the best strategy um, for individual families. Yeah, certainly. And, and one of the things I know they also take on is something like the marriage penalty, um, other things. And because, you know, the institutions matter. It's a lot of my research as well is on the importance of institutions and institutional changes. And the family is such a critical institution for us to come together and for 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 kids and, and everything else. But it also gives that sense of community as well as you're growing together and you get education and everything else that goes on. Um, And it's unfortunate oftentimes to where I think there's a movement afoot of it's kind of more of this populism movement of saying, look, the government is the solution to a lot of these problems. We need to make sure that, you know, government uh, maybe pays workers a certain amount or has um, more of a connection to labor unions or more handouts overall. When oftentimes I think we need to reevaluate and think, well, where is government really getting in the way now? How, how can we have more government come in if that's going to exacerbate potentially the problem versus removing some of those obstacles that are on the other side of the situation? And I, I wonder what your thoughts are on, on that. Yeah, no, it's exactly right. And I mean, government policy is often, I mean, they are well-intentioned for the most part, but there are just so many unintended consequences that actually make these problems worse in the long run. So, you, I mean, you had mentioned a UBI. I mean, I am not a fan of a UBI 
type model because it has work disincentives. Um, And it's especially problematic for low income families, households, because if employment is going to be that catalyst to get people out of poverty, why then would you have a government policy that reduces the incentive to work? Um, And and we have that now. We have that built into the SNAP program, which is food assistance. There's work disincentives built into that program. There's large work disincentives into housing assistance. Um, If households are lucky enough to get that assistance, which is fairly generous for those who can get it, but there are major work disincentives built into that program. And like I mentioned, there's a marriage penalty in the earned income tax credit, whereas if you get married to the other parent of your child, and if you're both working, you often can lose thousands of dollars um, in the earned income tax credit. So these are just not ways that you would want to design government assistance programs because you're actually um, harming the very outcomes that people need to achieve to get themselves ahead. Uh, And so I think that from that perspective, we do need to sort of tear down the whole system. Again, well-intentioned, like nobody's nobody's saying that these programs weren't set up to try to help people, but we have to recognize that they have these unintended consequences. And from a policy perspective, we have to also address those unintended consequences, which is why like the earned income tax credit should have a work requirement. It only goes to working people. The uh, child tax credit, um, the Democrats have spent two years trying to expand it to non-working families, which in my view is just completely counter to decades of evidence on, on what actually helps families in poverty, which is employment. So there needs to be a, an employment component to all of these programs. Otherwise, in the long run, we end up uh, with policies that are well-intentioned, but actually can harm families in the long run. That's right. I think we've seen a lot of that evidence over the last couple of years. Child tax credit was increased substantially in 2021. Uh, The number of people that have dropped out of the labor force or stayed out of the labor force after they lost their job during the early stages of the pandemic and the shutdowns. We also have a lot of people that are still on the sidelines today. <laughs> we, we need to get people back into the workforce. And then, you know, because I'm concerned about what the long-term effects of that's going to be. You know, each month or especially year that you're out of the workforce is lost productivity, meaning lost earnings over time. But it's not just about the income stuff. I mean, I'm a PhD economist, so I like to think about it in those terms. But it's also about the dignity, the hope that people have that comes with work, that comes with being productive overall, that I think we're we're losing a lot of that right now. Um, And I'm wondering, you know, how many people are going to go back into the workforce and how many people are going to get stuck on these programs um, that are set up by government that have been more liberal in that sense of more available and having fewer requirements that you have to do, that this could be a longer term problem. And that was why I was so interested when I saw the book. When it was coming out, uh, that I, I really wanted to have you on, and um, I, I think as we wrap up here, what are some of the the last sort of things that you would want um, the audience to know about the book, about you know the, the the future, or anything else that you would love to share? So it's interesting, you know, you, you mentioned labor force participation and some of those issues. I mean, Nicholas Eber, Eberstadt. Um, who is an AEI scholar, he wrote a wonderful chapter in the book. Um, and he's written a couple versions of a book about this problem of declining labor force participation, um, especially among men. But more recently, since the pandemic, it has been this kind of older, um, and I wouldn't even say retire age, more like the 50, above 50, um, kind of early retirements. 
And he really just points out kind of all of the negative consequences associated with that, as you mentioned, not just financial, but a lot of non-financial issues. And then it also contributes to slower economic growth for the country as a whole. And he just raises a lot of red flags about what this means for our future. So to, to your point, or just you know what I would want to leave you with and your listeners with, I think it is this point about government always being the federal government, especially um, being turned to, to be the solver <laughs> of all problems. We're very good, uh, meaning the policy community, scholars like myself, at sort of diagnosing problems. You know, marriage rates are down, people are having fewer children, you know, poverty is an issue. We're not as good at really uh, identifying the causes of those problems. And in my, my view, we've done a really bad job in the past couple of years. We've identified um, what we think are causes of these problems that really are not at all. And then that results in policy solutions like the expanded child tax credit that not only are going to be tremendously costly over time, but actually could be more harmful um, in the long run than they are helpful in the short run. And so I would just challenge people to think, really think through those unintended consequences and think more long term when um, people are coming up with policy solutions. Well put, Angela. Opportunity costs. <laughs> it's something I talk about all the time as an economist. So I think you're you're right on. Um, thank you so much for being on the program. Um, God bless you and, and your family. And uh, for those, if you like this show, uh, whether listening or watching, uh, please leave us a five star rating. Um, and, and we'll have some more shows um, soon. Thank you, Angela. Have a great day. And audience, you have a great day and let people prosper. <laughs>